episode 194 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. You can get a free three-day trial of the Ground School app by visiting learnthefinerpoints.com. I'm Glenn DeVries. I work in life sciences, helping to get new medicines to people who are waiting for them. And I love to fly, and I just went to space. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's podcast is with Glenn DeVries. Glenn currently is an astronaut. He is, by all means of the term, an astronaut. He was just on the second Blue Origin flight, and he just landed not too long ago. So it was really exciting to talk to him about the whole process of Blue Origin, how he got the phone call, how this whole thing happened, and what it's like to call himself an astronaut, and just what that flight was like. Uh, Glenn has a, a really cool story, and got in aviation a little bit later, always wanted to be in aviation, but finally started taking those flights and getting some hours later in life, and he currently owns a DA-40. Uh, he said he got that because of the podcast with Tyson and how he talked about the DA-40. So Diamond, if you're listening, people love that airplane and we can work something out. Just kidding. But seriously, I'd love one. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Aviation, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, if you do, please leave us a review. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot and make sure to check out Pilot's Coffee, the best coffee in the game. I don't want to take up any more of your time. So without any further ado, here's Glenn DeVries. Glenn, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on too. I mean, we we can't not just talk about the last part of what you said. You just went to space, like literally just w- was up there and, and hanging out up there for a couple of minutes. Uh, I, I'm excited to, to talk about that whole experience in a little bit. I really want to touch on kind of who you are and how you even got to this point and then talk about it. But what was it for you, aviation? Uh, what was the original kind of inspiration for you to look in the sky, see planes, read books? Like what got you thinking about aviation? Yeah, I, I remember uh, from my earliest days uh, in the school library as a kid, uh, pretty much absorbing everything in a particular section of the library. And it went from physics to cosmology, and it went from uh, anything related to mechanical devices all the way to airplanes and um, spacecraft and just kind of STEM. Uh, as people refer to it today, like science, technology, engineering, and math was just, that was the locus of everything I loved. And um, aviation and space, um, apropos to the other week, uh, were really in the middle of that. I mean, honestly, from a professional perspective, I wound up more in the molecular and the biological end of that original interest. But as I grew up, it it didn't change. I'll, I'll confess that I have like lamps by the side of my bed that if you look at them, they just look like lamps. But honestly, they're supposed to look like jet engines. It's basically like Star. It's like Star Wars sheets for forty-nine-year-olds. So like that—that that part of me never went away. And then I got lucky enough that I could start to actually pursue it later in, in life. So as you're going through, as you're growing up, going through school, uh, going into college and stuff, did you ever take any flights? Did you ever go fly at all, or was this a later in life project? 
It was totally later in life. I mean, I, I, I was lucky enough to have some um, people who I knew along the way, uh, like a friend of my dad one summer, like took me up in, in his, I, I think it was a 172, um, but it wasn't like something that was uh, a part of my life. And then uh, about uh, almost 10 years ago, now, nine years ago on uh, my 49th birthday, I'd gotten lucky enough in life that I could um, actually make a reservation for a Virgin Galactic seat, which is kind of part of my space story. But because of that, I wound up meeting a lot of people um, who were really interested also in, in space and in aviation. And I realized, like, a lot of these people fly. Like, why am I not a pilot? And that really started the process of, oh, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll have the luxury of being able to do this. And then that kind of started to happen. And uh, really, it was just a couple of years ago that I, I started to fly in earnest and got instantly completely addicted to it. Did you have any doubts? Uh, I mean, a lot of people aren't, I mean, I'm not going to say as smart as you, but uh, you have a very impressive background in science and STEM like we're talking about. But when it comes to actually flying a plane, did you ever think to yourself, like, I can't do that. That's for, that's for pilots. Or that's for other people. Or was it just another kind of task and a, a check mark that you could check off in your box and your impressive resume? Oh, I, that's very kind of you to say in terms of like my, my background. I mean, I, I think probably like, like anybody, um, you, you go up and you go on one of those intro flights. Actually, I did an intro flight. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was five or six years ago now. And I, and I loved it. And then life got in the way. And then, uh, I started again in, in earnest. And I'm sure, you know, maybe not everybody, but I definitely had those days when you're, you're trying to, get ready for your first solo and you're struggling with your landings um, or, you know, you uh, I got my instrument rating and you're just like, Oh my God, how am I going to like deal with all this information? And, and, and you're having a hard time multitasking. I mean, I, I assume almost everybody goes through that um, becoming a pilot, but honestly, I, I, I love doing stuff and um, I don't know how else to describe it other than like merit badges. If you were a scout, I wasn't actually a scout, but I just like that idea. And it's like, I realized, you know, here's, here's a pursuit that has a lifetime supply of merit badges, right? There's, there's always some other thing to learn, plane to fly, rating to get. And, and that just appeals to me in a, a very deep level. And so not only do I love the, the sensation of it and the freedom of it, and what you see, but just the the intellectual satisfaction of that, I, I just found to be right in line with the the way I like to think about. Was what there I anything do with my spare time. that you took from uh, learning to fly, becoming a pilot, that whole process that you were able to apply to your everyday life, whether it's uh, implementation of more checklists or just the way a pilot thinks, has that actually improved your your business life or your personal life at all? It's so funny you say that. I was it was just in Ireland, and I realized that I. I was sitting and I've driven on, on what an American would think is the wrong side of the road many times before. I'm pretty comfortable do it, doing it. But I just realized, oh, here I am at a stop sign, you know, about to make a left turn. And I, I, I have a plan in my head as if I was going to go approach some new airport. Like, I, I'm con- don't get behind the car. You know, and that <laughs> clearly came with don't get behind the plane. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, so the answer would be yes, and for sure. It's really funny. It's, <laughs> yes, uh, it's, a, that's a, it's a hard yes. Yeah, that's, uh, I could see that. That could definitely be a little bit interesting. Uh, I've never driven on the wrong side of the road. I've been to other countries, but I've never actually driven myself. And I imagine the first time you do it, you're kind of like, what are we doing, people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, there's certain turns. It's like, it's just so unnatural. And again, I, I, and I think you're right. It's just, it's this mindset of, of planning ahead and, and, um, thinking about risk management in different ways. Honestly, I have a lot of people who said to me, um, 
you know, why, why are you, why are you flying a single engine plane from New York to Texas, which I did before the Blue Origin flight? You know, isn't that, isn't that dangerous? And I actually I say to people, well, actually, I work in medical research. I've done that for my entire professional career. And you think about, of course, testing new therapies on humans, on volunteers, on people. Um, it, yes, it could be something you would think of as dangerous, but you think about risk management along the way, and you come up with various plans for what's going to happen and what you're going to do if things um, go in a different direction. And it's kind of very similar to the way I feel like you think about being a pilot, right? You, you think about risks and you mitigate them and you learn you know, the procedures for what to do if something unexpected happens. And, and so I, I even think from like a risk perspective, it's something that, that not only I learned by being a pilot, but also there was stuff in my life beforehand, which which actually kind of had a virtuous cycle with how I think about things. Yeah, and I feel like life in general is all about how you handle adversity, and that's no different than in the aircraft, in an airplane, or in your profession. You're going to get a lot of crazy things thrown at you, and the only difference with aviation is there's certified checklists for you to go for for almost every single thing in every single airplane for any situation that could happen. Now, there are some situations where like, oh, that could never happen, and I'm sure it does happen once, and it's kind of like, oh, crap, you're a test pilot. But you still have a, a training in the back of your mind. You have the the ability to kind of uh, compartmentalize the fear a little bit and just get to work and get it done. And that's the same thing I'm guessing, like you're saying, with your work and with aviation. Yeah, and, and actually, you bring up test pods. I mean, I I, I think one of the coolest ideas um, in my mind about them is it can have somebody who can read what is effectively an engineering document, right? Like actually go through what is the the proposed flight manual for something and then be able to get up and fly it. Like that to me is an incredible application um, of, of what we're just talking about, this idea of just really mentally preparing yourself and then putting yourself in a situation kind of, in their case, cold. Um, I find that to be super heroic and cool. Yeah, that's going to be a hard pass in my end. I like to, to fly an airplane that's <laughs> gone through the certification process that's been thoroughly tested. I don't want to be the first. Uh, being the first in aviation usually isn't the best thing. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things that could happen, but someone's got to be the first, right? <laughs> right, right. And so, you, you know, same, the same in, in, in medicine and science, right? Yeah, somebody's got to try something the, the first time. And again, you, you, you work with people, you find people who um, are, are the best equipped to do that. Now that you've gotten into flying itself and you have a, a DA-40 like we talked about in the beginning, uh, do you ever regret not flying earlier? Do you wish you would have done this earlier or are you kind of just happy with how everything has played off with your life and flying? Yeah, I, I try not to be one of those people who go go back and, and look at the past. Actually, in business, people are always like, oh, if you could go back and talk to like young Glenn, what would you tell him? And I always say, well, I would probably just, you know, sit in the shadows watching and laughing. Um, you know, I, I, I saw Avengers Endgame. I've seen Back to the Future. I know not to go back and mess with the past. So, so, but, um, but I do think that because I kind of found it um, later in life, and honestly, because I, I'm in a situation, um, thanks to some of the stuff in my career, where I'm lucky enough that I can spend time on it, and I, I, you know, I can um, go, go fly my DA-40 whenever I feel like it, pretty much. Um, I, I feel like... Uh, I have even more of a, of a fire lit under me to really um, experience and learn as much as I can. And so um, maybe I'd feel differently if I started when I was 20 and it'd be kind of a, a slow burn. But, you know, starting in my late 40s, I, I'm just excited to, to kind of get my hands on every aircraft I can and try everything I can and, and get those merit badges, um, you know, uh, <laughs> lined up in a way that, that maybe I, I wouldn't have the same uh, level of um, intense enthusiasm for 
if it was, as I said, kind of a slower burn in my life. I love it. Have you had any moment, like uh, I call it the WTF moment, the moment where you're like, what am I doing? Or something crazy happens in the airplane and you really kind of scare yourself. Have you had that moment yet? I don't know if I've had anything like super crazy like that. Um, you know, I, I definitely feel like there are the, the, the times when I don't know, it, it, it's such a, it's such a, uh, I think easy, um, uh, equipment failure situation, but uh, like, I had my, my, uh, backup, uh, fuel pump, uh, the circuit breaker pop out. And, you know, I, I have an amazing, uh, CFI, this guy, Tom Fisher from Fisher Aviation. Um, and you know, I dealt with it and I landed the plane. I treated like every other landing. It's certainly like, not like anything was going to go wrong unless you had a problem with the mechanical fuel pump, but it's definitely like the, Oh, okay. Not the, a WTF moment, but a this is the kind of thing that you prepare for. Again, it was an easy one. The other thing that I'll tell you happens to me, um, thankfully, more often than a, oh, wow, this is why, you know, flying is serious and, and you have to make sure that you know all that stuff and are paying attention. But are the moments of just like, wow, this is just more spectacular and beautiful than I thought it could possibly be. I, I was on a, a flight coming out of um, Arkansas and started an IMC and... Um, you went through some light precipitation and then the clouds started to part. And, you know, by the end of the flight, it was sunny and just everything that I saw in, in the middle was just, just gorgeous and amazing to kind of witness that part of our, our planet and, and weather systems. Um, and, and so I definitely have a lot of those. Wow. This is an amazing thing that I put into my life. And frankly, I see that through other people. Like, this, some, sometimes there's nothing better than taking, you know, somebody for their first flight in a small plane and they get to see the world in a new way. And you kind of see that wonder through their eyes. So, so the moments are important. I, I don't know if I've had, you know, horrible WTF ones yet. <laughs> well, I hope you don't. I hope you don't go fly tomorrow and have a WTF moment and then send me an email and be like, what the heck, man? Why'd you bring that up? <laughs> I can't believe we didn't record the pilot, the pilot, pilot podcast two days later. We yeah. have an even better story. We'll put an amendment out for that one. Don't worry. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it is funny, though. Even when you say like small things that go wrong, they when it's either the first one or even if you've had a couple of small things, like each one uh, catches your attention differently and it can distract you in different ways. Uh, maybe it's in the back of your mind. Maybe it takes over your mind. You've never had anything go wrong before. And I'm guessing this transitions to everything in life, especially flying in the blue origin. You're, it's the first time you've ever done this and you're kind of like, uh, is that light supposed to be on? <laughs> I know we've only flown this right. once, but like it just, it just catches your, your attention and it, it kind of derails you from what you're doing and kind of the task at hand. So every single thing can, can end up worse than it did. So it's a good thing that you handled it how you did and didn't let that affect anything. Yeah. And also I kind of, uh, again, it goes back to learning. I mean, I, the, the first time that it seemed the ATC couldn't hear me when I responded to something, um, in an instrument flight, you know, you, you, you start to sit there going through your checklist and, and doing stuff. And so, you know, I think, I think some of those are kind of reinforcing kind of teachable moments too. And, and, uh, again, I, I think, I think in life, it's not just an aviation. Like the, those are the things that are important, right? That those are the moments that define you and and are the beginning of uh, hopefully good habits, but whatever the habits are. And, and so I, I like when those happen again. Obviously, nobody wants them to be dangerous or come out the wrong way, but it's, I think it's good stuff. That's really funny. Yeah, we'll see if you like when it happens a couple of years down the road. You're like, I don't like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, uh, when I was uh, I was in the uh, West Texas, and um, you know, it's one of those things, and and some some really nice 
um, person in the Gulf Stream wound up you know, re- relaying my messages to ATC because I was in a valley where I couldn't get any reception. And and even then, it was like, kind of like, kind of felt like kind of nice when when somebody else was there to to participate in the process who you know wasn't in the plane. What's been the hardest part for you learning how to fly uh, from the beginning to where you are now? What's just been one thing that's kind of just like surprised you or either how difficult, not necessarily difficult, but how much time it took you to, to get it right? Yeah, I, I, I feel like I feel like almost every individual skill as I've encountered it in flying is not that hard. It's the multitasking, which is just a, a and the, the task prioritization, which just happens at, at a level that most people don't really encounter, I think. Um, and so you know, doing a, doing a, a, being an IMC flying solo, try, you know, hand flying in approach and, um, uh, as happened to me the other day, like the ATIS was out somewhere and getting the weather from, uh, ATC, like all that stuff it is is surprisingly um, manageable to me sometimes. It's like, wait a minute, how did I get from where I was um, trying to make sure I made my call from from downwind to base to here? Like, and, and so it's actually part of that satisfaction, I think, is climbing that multitasking curve. But to me, that was one of the biggest things, um, especially as it comes to to comms. You know, I, I, the, the aviate, navigate, communicate um, prioritization just did not come naturally to me. And so, um, again, it's satisfying when it happens, but it's always uh, an interesting thing to kind of reflect on how that's evolved. Yeah, and it's one of those things. It's just like uh, going through grade school. It's like you don't start with calculus. You start with basic level math. You move yourself up to algebra, and you keep going up and up and up. And you're, it's just a constant progression and training. And you you learn how to talk. Then you learn, or you learn how to fly. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to navigate. And you do each individual step, and then eventually it just starts clicking and clicking and clicking. And then you do it all together. And then you get totally thrown off, and you go to your instrument rating. And then you're like, "What the heck?" <laughs> <laughs> There's a friend of mine um, who I originally met. Uh, work and and i i encouraged him um to start flying because he was interested in it and he did and then he came with me um on uh, his first instrument flight he doesn't even have his his uh, private quite yet and all i did was was copy down my clearance uh, before we took off and he looked at me and he was like that was awesome <laughs> it just gives you that perspective about how things change over time as you learn yeah, and especially an instrument. It's like a foreign language when you start. It's a different way to communicate uh, what they're throwing at you. And it's really funny is that they don't really have, like when they're giving you their clearance, they expect you to be on a certain level, whether you're a student pilot, <laughs> whether you're an instrument. It's it's not like they don't really know that you're you're not an instrument rated pilot. So they're coming out. They might have a busy day. They're just rattling off a clearance, clear to Raleigh Durham, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, whoa, I got Raleigh and I got nothing else. <laughs> like, please slow down. <laughs> right. Right. It, it's okay when you're, you're coming back from doing like your, your first steep turn solo to be like student pilot when you call the tower when you're going home, but you can't be like, uh, you know, sorry guys, this is my first RNAV. Can you, <laughs> can you tell me, should, should I really be doing the procedure turn here or not? Like, there's no like qualification there. You think everybody expects you to know, which is cool. It is cool. Yeah. Uh, are you, is instrument your highest rating right now? Do you have your commercial rating? Yeah, so my instrument's my highest. I'm working my commercial now. Um, so I, I, and I'm going to keep going. I, I really feel like, at least from my perspective, the 
it's not like I, I have plans to go, you know, fly for some, you know, regional airline. Um, but I, I really like the idea of at least getting my CFI. I, I think that, that being able to um, not just uh, avoid things that could go wrong, um, but being able to handle things if they have gone wrong or somebody else caused them to go wrong is uh, something that I, I feel like is probably, at least in, in my mind, good from a safety perspective. As I said before, I love learning stuff. Um, I actually thought I'd be teaching in the college, you know, biology level classes for the rest of my life. If you asked me what I was doing 25 years ago, so you know, the possibility of maybe doing some um, instruction is interesting. And frankly, if I'm with say that same friend and he's got his private and he wants to go flying, the idea of being super comfortable in my plane or somebody else's plane from the right seat sounds like a really good idea to me too. So at least that's my plan. I'll get my commercial. Uh, I think soon, and then I'll get the CFI. What's your plan for kind of aircraft? Do you want to collect, like you said, collect all the merit badges, fly all the planes? Are you like looking to get in the jets eventually, or are you kind of just happy in the in the single uh, prop world? Yeah, I, and so I, I I love my DA forty two bits. I found one from twenty fourteen that I, I you know I think you get the G one thousand MXI or whatever it is if you get a brand new one now, but it's basically the 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 closest to latest um, avionics. So it's great for, for IFR. Um, I love that plane. Uh, I do think now having done some longer cross countries, I've gone to Florida from New York, I've gone to Texas, uh, a little bit more power, um, something that is not uh, normally aspirated. Um, you know, when, when you're up to like 12,000 feet and density altitude, it's, it's kind of like, the little engine that could is a little bit of a, I think I can, as you're trying to climb more. Um, and, and something with the second engine where I think I'll, I'll feel better. Um, not just taking myself, but taking other people, um, over water and, and over certain kinds of terrain. That's interesting to me. But honestly, like right after I got my private, um, I found that there was a flight school where you could go, um, learn how to fly F-104 starfighters. And I immediately went down there. Like I, I, it, if there's an opportunity to get in the high performance aircraft, I will do it. I think uh, that's what you need to do. You know, you need to see with the P fifty one Mustang, get you an F sixteen, <laughs> go fly around. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I uh, the, my my company, which is medical research focused, got um, acquired a couple of years ago by uh, this company Deso Systems, which is a company that makes software for designing planes, designing cars. Um, lots of things in manufacturing and logistics, and it is a spinoff of Dassault Aviation. And so I, I, I've like, you, you haven't been able to do it the last couple of years because of uh, the pandemic, obviously. But I really like the idea of getting to go to like the Paris Air Show with my, you know, Dassault badge. And, and <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've got my, you know, commercial ticket you know i'll just take this <laughs> f-16 for a spin i'll be right back that's amazing <laughs> well hey if you ever need if you ever get a guest pass or anything like that you know hit me up i'll uh, i'll <laughs> gladly join you at the paris air show that's awesome oh, yeah tell them to throw in a falcon or something you know like hey <laughs> exactly yeah exactly i don't need the 9x or 8x like just i'll take an old one it's cool i'll take whatever <laughs> all right i'm chill you know yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's the it's the right next plane if you have a da40 it makes yeah, sense why not yeah it's all good you'll be fine to figure it out <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the DA-62 might be a good option for you if you're already in the diamond family. 
I, I actually, I, I love the, the 40 so much. I, I think the 42 would be awesome. I, this seems like a sensible step up. So we'll see. I, I don't know if I need to haul that many people around for the 62. Again, I'm, I'm mostly like take the friend for, for breakfast or lunch, um, go somewhere for the weekend um, and the occasional multi-hop cross country, which I actually have, I've started to enjoy more and more. Like the, the uh, yeah, there's all the activity and you're applying all your learnings and learning new stuff. But I've also realized that being out of everybody's text range and sitting there alone and enjoying the scenery is actually a lovely meditative aspect of flying, at least that style of flying. And so, you know, it's, uh, I'm not desperate to go that much faster or that much higher, but a little bit is the next step. So what was it about the DA40 that kind of sealed the deal for you? You know, in a world where so many people are, are buying Cirruses, are buying um, 172s, 206s, 182s. What was it about the Diamond that kind of caught your attention? You're like, yes, that's my plane. Yeah, I mean, so, so I, I'm, yeah. seriously, the Pilot to Pilot podcast has a real piece in that, right? So I'm listening to your interview with, with Tyson Wise and he's talking about his DA40 and what a great plane it was uh, for a private pilot or and um, kind of thinking about well, what is it that you know I want and what are the kind of missions that I want to do. And then I kind of started looking at not just things online, but what the, the people were like from a community perspective. It seemed like there was a great community of diamond owners. Um, and and it just, it kind of landed in the, in the Venn diagram of the right kind of plane um, from a mission perspective, the right kind of community. Um, you know, it looked cool. <laughs> and, and it just, uh, I, the, the style of flying, um, that I wanted to do and having that, uh, having that yoke sitting right in front of you and, and having a little bit of a fighter jet feel to, to sitting in there, just, to, it just appealed to me. And, uh, I like, honestly have not looked back. I think I'm just going to uh, probably be a huge diamond fan forever. I'm going to clip that right now and send it to Diamond immediately. Like, hey, <laughs> you know, if uh, <laughs> you let me fly Diamond for a little bit, we might be able to sell some planes. <laughs> That's that awesome. Fair. Yeah. I think it's really cool. I mean, the, the entry point for aircraft is absolutely insane. Like, I mean, it's just the building and selling them making money. It's an insurance is just crazy. But Diamond puts a lot into an aircraft for a, not necessarily a reasonable amount of money, like for the average person, but in aviation terms, it's a reasonable amount of money and you can get a lot for your money for what Diamond can offer. Yeah. And, and I, I think it, as I looked at it and, and the idea of having uh, literally the same IO360 that, that I trained on in the 172, you know, it's an, it's an engine that I know it's super reliable. It wasn't too powerful. It's kind of, it, from going from from getting your private, getting something that's uh, enough plane that you can really have a great time and grow into, and not too much that it's overwhelming or it's going to be too easy to get yourself into into trouble in it. Um, it just seemed to fit into that. Now I feel like I should send this to Diamond so they can give me a better price on a forty two. But like, but yeah, you know, it, it just it just kind of hit every, every note. It checked every, every box that I was looking for. Yeah. We're going together. It'd be a package deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Two for one. Um, so let's, let's talk about this whole space thing. Like uh, this is just a wild, wild time for, for space travel, for aviation. I mean, what technology has been doing since the nineties the or early two thousands, and even just making it as simple as the iPad and how that has revolutionized uh, technology or revolutionized aviation technology. 
and using GPS. Uh, it's just incredible what we're doing right now. But I really, I'm really interested in how this started for you. Like, do you all of a sudden look at your phone and it's like Jeff Bezos is calling, or does Amazon? Does he have like your Amazon DM from Jeff? It's like, how does it? I don't know. That's not a thing. But like, how does how does this happen? It's just so foreign to me of uh, the idea of wanting to do this and then actually making this happen is very impressive. So, how did it start? Yeah. So uh, I think it's mostly um, luck, not anything to be impressed by. But I, I did. Um, so, so I, I do this stuff in medical research, as I said, um, my, my company, uh, was something that we started when we were all super young, we we're working in a teaching hospital and uh, I won't need to tell you that whole part of my life, but long story short, um, it turns out that we're doing a huge amount of the research around the planet. So whether it's in cancer, rare diseases, or recently for vaccines and the company's growing. And this is about 10 years ago, I actually had, um, some money. And um, we'd taken the company public. And, and that's when I thought, wow, I can really kind of live this lifelong dream of going to space. There is this company, Virgin Galactic, that is getting ready to do that. And so I thought, what a, what a cool thing to get for myself on my 40th birthday. Uh, and I got that seat reservation. That was the moment when the idea that that could really happen and it became real. And as I mentioned before, it was also kind of an important point because I met all these people who were not just in space, but in aviation and, and started my um, journey as a pilot. Um, but as time went on and they, they did have a hard time, they had their, their um, uh, horrible accident along the way. It it's taken a long time, but there was a lot of stuff that you could do in the interim. And frankly, they helped facilitate a lot of it, the, the Virgin team. So I, I did some time in, in uh, I don't know if you know, uh, the Zero-G Corp, Go Zero-G is their website. Um, full disclosure, I, I am now uh, a investor in that company. Uh, but you, know, you go up, you fly these parabolic arcs, you, um, you experience microgravity environments, okay, for 30 seconds at a time, but that's a lot more time than you ever can on Earth. Um, and so I'd done that a bunch of times. I went down to NASTAR and did some high-G training. Um, and so as you're doing stuff like that, I, I think it's just the natural progression. You wind up meeting people, not just people who, as I said, they're pilots and you think, Can, why am I not doing what they're doing? But you start to meet people who are in that aerospace world. And um, when there was this auction for the Blue Origin seat on the first human flight, uh, I participated in it. Obviously, I didn't win it, um, but I, I I think you know it, it once I think once you're you're in that world, you can find opportunities. Um, again, it's not like Jeff was you know calling my cell phone. Um, uh, I assume if you look at the the crew, um, uh, Chris uh, Bosshausen, who was the, the other customer on the flight from the the space industry himself, also a STEM person, an amazing advocate. And I think, you know, the, the combination of having people who are lucky enough that they could pay for the ticket um, and who really would be able to go out and, and I hope help advocate for why this is so important and uh, why the democratization of space is so critical from a technology and frankly, from like a civilization perspective. Um, you know, if you sat in those categories um, and you're on the list, you might be lucky enough to get a call. And as soon as I got that call, it took me about one millisecond to respond. Yes, I'm ready. Let's go. 
Who calls you? Um, Who's like, hey, this is blah, blah, blah with Blue Origin. We'd like to to tell you that you have yes. won the seat. You're going to be like, who, how right, does that right. work? I like, who's I didn't this? win the auction, so it, it, it wasn't Jeff. It was, it was just somebody <laughs> who from Blue Origin. That's funny. I mean, what a call to get. Like, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was exciting. And and and, and honestly, um, the the actual experience was really beyond my expectations in every way. And I'm like super happy to talk about the flight, but just because we were talking about uh, training and flying, one of the things that, that has also happened is over the last decade, I, um, it, not in a, hopefully a creepy way, but I certainly, anytime I know that there's, so, I have a connection to somebody who's been to space, I've always wanted to talk to them, right? It's always, it's cool to talk to them, to meet astronauts. I mean, I, I have a huge amount of hero worship for them. Um, and they turn out to usually be really interesting, um, smart, fun people. And along the way, I'd heard a bunch of times that for every moment you're in space, there's so many more moments on the ground um, training. And some of their, their, I think, most interesting memories are from that. And I have to tell you, for the Blue Origin stuff, it was the same. I mean, I, I got to meet Chris. I got to meet Audrey Powers, um, who is the, the person who runs a huge amount of the company that's related to New Shepard, to the, the vehicle we went on. Uh, I got to hang out with William Shatner, um, who turns out to be a lovely guy. I mean, like I say his name that way, it feels weird because I think that's my friend Bill now. Um, but we went through this incredible experience of learning about the, the, the vehicle and what we we're going to do on the flight and going through just like you would in the plane. I mean, obviously, it's an automated, um, it's an automated vehicle. I did have one button in front of me, which is the, for the fire suppression system. That was kind of exciting for me. Like, okay, if you see this light, then push this button. Like that was my one checklist. <laughs> like, so that was your but, button. That, that was Glenn's button. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of people at that button. I was oh, one okay. of the people with the button. That's yeah, funny. It was, hey, I, was, I was like in the emergency exit aisle. <laughs> like, these are, um, but, but the training was a really great experience. Um, and I think, you know, it, it prepared that plus, all the the stuff that I've been doing from a physical perspective, the fact that I was comfortable communicating um, from an aviation perspective, all that stuff, I, I think kind of set me up for for what was incredibly enjoyable um, and honestly like life changing from a perspective um, perspective trip past the Carmen line. How quick of a process was this from the phone call to the seat to being in space to coming down? Like how? far in advance did you know train like was it months was it years what was that what did that process yeah. look like yeah so so i see i couldn't remember to tell you the exact days but you know call it something in, in on the order of, of you know months um but i'm not talking about you know something that's going to round to years so uh, a couple months in advance uh, obviously i was talking to them and working on it um there was a couple days of training and you know all that is for a flight that is 10 minutes um, yeah, and those are an incredibly impactful, transformative 10 minutes, uh, which is why you want to be as prepared as possible. Um, but you know, the, the timeframes that you're talking about keep getting smaller. I did also have this thought that when I got down, my life would be different. And maybe a lot of stuff I'd done from a STEM advocacy perspective and, in um, science, but with a, a medical perspective could really be changed and supplemented with things from a space perspective. And and maybe actually that 10 minutes, that little short period, um, you know, the time frame's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, um, is, is kind of the, the fulcrum 
Um, because because actually maybe the big period of time is now everything that's been happening and and I think might if I'm lucky enough continue to happen in terms of that advocacy. Um, but but in terms of the whole process of you know answering your question, it was it was a few months leading up to that amazing day. So you get the call, you go to training. I'm guessing was it somewhere? Is everything handled somewhere out in remote West Texas for all this? Right? Yeah, yeah, everything's out in West Texas. I actually just I put my first review ever. On uh, four flight, I, I can't say enough nice things about the Culverson County Airport and uh, Larry and Jeff and, and the people who run it. Um, so I, I did my kind of multi-hop trip in in the Diamond um, out to West Texas. Um, actually, there was a day when I didn't have anything uh, to do in the morning. I took the the plane and uh, the guy who's a test engineer who I'd met at Blue Origin. For his first flight in a small plane, and we were just doing orbits around the the launch site, and man, did that feel astronauty! <laughs> it was really enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> I'm going to be in that. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so the, so I flew down there. All the training was down there, and and there's um, there's a simulator. If you, you look at some of the uh, things that they put on TV, some of the interviews we did in the background, you see what looks like the the blue origin cap, new shepherd capsule and it's, it looks like it because it is i mean it's just like a complete engineering replica of it so literally you go in there and it's like being in a simulator you get into the seat and you practice all the movements that you're going to make and you listen to the sounds of the engines and this is what's going to happen this time of the flight and this is what the shoots sound like and then you know this is this is how you would get out if it lands somewhere that wasn't expected, you know, everything that is for a normal flight or something that um, might be, you know, in, in space terms, off nominal, they train you for. And and that's what you do out at the site where the flight goes from. Was there anything like, Oh, and by the way, if this happens, like just good luck, we don't know what's going to happen because we've only done this no, twice. No. <laughs> no, actually, honestly, one of the things that is really cool about um, new shepherd, the, the, the blue origin vehicle is I actually think it's really well designed from a safety perspective. You know, there's um, there's the ability to escape, um, to, to get away from the the booster um, at every point of flight where something could possibly go wrong. Yeah, honestly, in for kind of pilot to pilot context, it, it's like having um, uh, it's like having a chute that you could pull in a Cirrus. So. So you're, you're in a vehicle that is designed for a very specific mission, right? To get a, uh, a significant, but in the grand scheme of space, a relatively light cargo, sometimes payload, sometimes people up to a significant, um, but non orbital altitude, um, and velocity and back super reliably, super safely. And so it, there isn't. There isn't any moment where you're like, oh, wow, you know, this could happen. I, I actually, again, maybe, maybe I came in with a lot of preparation, but there wasn't like any kind of moments of, of fear in that process. Actually, we got asked by the media a couple of times because there was a day when we didn't fly because the winds were too high. And we scrubbed the flight for a day. I should say we, they scrubbed the flight for a day. You know, and, uh, but, but, um, people are like, oh, did you, does that make you feel more nervous? It's like no, no. You're just watching what happens when, like, when the weather is dangerous. So 
you're supposed to feel less nervous when you realize that you're doing it. <laughs> like, like, that's a, that's a good thing in aviation. I, it's, it's like funny side story. I, I took my, I took my girlfriend for the first flight and the diamond that she was going to do. And we had this crazy, or we, I had this plan. I was going to take her down the, the, um, this, this, you know, skyline route by New York city and, you know, see Manhattan over from the river and then stop at a, a place for lunch and then fly her back. And the, the weather did not look like the forecast when I got to the airport and I took off and the clouds were way lower than I thought. And we went around the pattern and we landed and she looked at me and she was like, wow, that was awesome. And I think, I think from that moment on, she was, she loves to fly. She's like, yeah, you can take me up anytime you want. Like now I can tell that you're clearly focused on safety and art. You know, you don't have impress me itis if I can make up, you know, an aviation hazard. And, and so even the way that Blue Origin kind of handles its procedures and thinks about the weather and all that was like, Hey, media, like if you all had a pilot's license, you would know that this is actually <laughs> an indicator of safety. Not that, you know, you're not paying attention to it. Yeah. But that doesn't sell, you know, <laughs> that's not going to get people to click on the lines. <laughs> that, right, yeah. that, that doesn't get, get people clicking unless I know. The only way that they'll get people to really click is if they can pin Jeff against uh, Elon <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, but no, you're not, you're, you're very right. Like that to just scream safety. And yeah if, yeah, if they did take off in a bad situation, that would just be reckless. And the, the true people would know that that would be kind of a joke, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Let's take a break from today's episode to hear from our sponsor, RAA. When it comes to open enrollment, you might be surprised by just how many pilots are missing out on many of the benefits offered by the airlines. You see, making the right benefit elections during open enrollment can have a significant impact on both your current financial situation and your retirement. And that opportunity only comes around once a year. That's why RAA has created an open enrollment resource center packed full of important content from videos, articles, and interactive tools all dedicated to guiding you through this crucial period. At RAA, helping pilots achieve their financial dreams is what they do. And it all starts by having the trusted resources you need to achieve them. Visit RAA's Open Enrollment Resource Center at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot to pilot. And now back to today's episode. No, I was going to say, you do all this simulator training and they prepare you for this moment of having the most incredible ride roller coaster, literally strapped to a rocket. Is there any way to prepare you for the feeling that you get when you take off right after the countdown from 10 and you hit zero and you feel that initial just jolt? Is there any way to right. prepare so for my, that? My answer to that question is no. <laughs> I mean, and, and again, I've been thinking about that moment. Not that I thought there was going to be real, but I've been thinking about it for my whole life as far as I can, back as I can remember. And it, it was even when, when the countdown, um, there's a readout for it in front of you in the capsule, when, when a digit came off and you go from 10 to 9.59, like, that felt exciting. And then when it went from one minute to 59 seconds, that felt exciting. And then um, when uh, Kevin, our, our Capcom, also awesome guy, Navy test pilot, um, uh, started actually saying 10, nine, eight. It was like, wow, we are really going. And my seat was next to the tower. So as the main engine starts and you hear this, this noise, you start to see the, the side of the tower turning red and orange and yellow. And it was such an interesting part of the flight. 
it, the, the, the part where you're up in, in the above Carmen line space, you're outside of your seat floating, which again, we should talk about it was incredible, but I wasn't really intellectually or emotionally prepared for how awesome, not just the moment of, of liftoff, but the beginning of the arc of the flight was going to be because you go from human scale. Like you can see cactus and you can see um, features of the metal work on the tower. You know, you're, you're, there's a bolt, right? There's a girder. And then you start to see what I think probably a lot of people listening is a very familiar set of textures of agricultural features and hills and, you know, a, a frontal um, system. And then all of a sudden you start to move at a speed. I mean, you feel the acceleration the whole time where you also at the same time are getting less and less of a sense of scale. The angles between you and the clouds are changing less rapidly, even though you are literally rocketing over them. And you start to notice shadows under clouds and different perspectives than you've ever seen them before. And I'm usually pretty good, not even just from a, a kind of pilotage perspective, but of identifying things out a window. I immediately lost all sense of landmarks or what anything was. And the sun kind of the, the, the whole ship rotates very slowly um, right after liftoff. And it's intentional. It's, it's so uh, everybody gets a good view. And so as the, as the vehicle's rotating, the sun comes across my window. And at this point, the sky was still blue. You could start to see, like, you could see some, like, black um, at, above it. And the, I closed my eyes, I mean, literally for, like, a second, um, just because it was so bright. But I really want to see. So I start to squint my left eye open a little bit. And in that second, I went from being underneath the delineation of blue and black to over that delineation. And the horizon is starting to perceptively curve. This thing that you're just used to seeing is straight. Um, it was like being in, it's in like, like maybe the Men in Black movie, but also like educational videos or um, the, the planetarium in New York City has something like this where you just keep zooming out and zooming out and zooming out and zooming out and zooming out, but you're in it. And it, I, I just, that, I'm still working on being articulate about it. That's the best I can do for you, I think. Um, but it was just this incredible thing. And by the way, you do it all in reverse on the way back too. I was going to ask, is there, I'm guessing it's one of those things where no, no matter what you come up with to explain it, it doesn't encapsulate the moment that you're in. Like there's really no words for it. It's only an experience that you can have. And as you talked about earlier, it's all about the moments. It's only a moment that you can have. And, and it's very hard to kind of like, articulate how that made you feel, how that made everyone feel, the bond you immediately have with everyone that's in that ship together. Uh, it just sounds like something that you you have to experience to really uh, understand. I, I think so. And people have written you know, books about this thing, the overview effect. And, and again, and the astronauts have been lucky enough to talk to, or you see them interviewed that I think, I think this, there's a pattern of people having a hard time articulating what it is like to see Earth from that distance, and then certainly even farther, right? And I, I'm a biologist, you know, I, ostensibly by training. Like I think I still can see that caption under my head when I look in the mirror in the morning. And the the human body, right, has evolved to function in one G, 
Um, the human brain has evolved to see things at certain distances and at certain scales. I actually keep having this thought that maybe the reason none of us are who are lucky enough to have seen any of that able to articulate it that well is because it's just hard to put into words something that you're so unprepared for from a scale perspective. Being at the top of that arc, I, I you know, so you're microgravity, but the whole crew all just wanted to look out the window. You know, they, they make sure part of the training is you have your mission plan, right? This is what you're going to do. Some of that is, is practical. So you're not bumping into each other probably. Um, but I think some of that is just intellectual. It's like, like, it's like going for a flight. Like, what's your plan? <laughs> Don't get behind the spacecraft. So, right. So my plan was to, to unbuckle and look out the window. And I just figured since I was in microgravity, I would do it what would be ostensibly upside down. So I kind of one point rotate myself. And now I'm looking out at the just blackness of space. And it is pitch black, right? There's too much um, light reflecting from the sun to see any stars during the day um, when you're when you're up there. And now that the kind of ball of the earth is hanging above me, and you see these colors, which again, I think this might be my my brain playing tricks on me. I but I feel like in my memory they are more vivid than the the blues and browns and greens and whites that I have seen on earth. And it's just kind of hanging there. And you see this little blue line, which is the atmosphere and like what we live in. And it's little. And you just feel this sense of, of not just beauty, but fragility. And actually Bill, um, it's nice to have somebody from the arts who actually has spent their entire life thinking about emotion and trying to communicate it. It, He puts it really well. I mean, it it just, it's just that visceral meaning of home. And if somebody's not worried about protecting the environment, like forget about who, who or why, you know, environmental problems, you know, come from just, if you don't want to think about preserving it, my recommendation is don't go to space because <laughs> you will, you will come down thinking, wow, that, that is a very, very small thing that we live in and it is really precious. Um, and then uh, also uh, Bill suggested that we have this moment while we're all up there doing our own thing. Let's, let's have a moment of camaraderie because we are going through this incredibly transformative um, experience together. And so um, it, we, we decided to do it at Apogee at the very top of the, the arc uh, because it's the pilot to pilot podcast, I will say, I, I, I think because in the simulations, I was pretty good at keeping one eye on the instruments and, and doing a quick scan to see where we were. And when the when the altitude was changed from going up to starting to go down, the velocity of the craft went to zero. So so my my scans actually helped me in space. <laughs> but I yeah, I call it Apogee and we all turn around and we put our hands together. I think there's a publicity shot people might have seen of us doing that. And you can just like see tears in people's eyes. They're of course not streaming out because there's no gravity to make them come out. Um, but everybody was really, really emotional um, because it was such an impactful thing that we went through. It was really cool. Now you can be honest here. When you hear ten, nine, eight, seven, 
Is there any thought in your mind that's like, all right, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, I don't want to be on this, uh, this ship that could explode. It's like, get me out of here. Or were you just like so excited, no. ready to go? No, honestly, I, I, I really didn't have that. I, I would tell you if I did, I mean, I don't, again, it's, it's biological. There's like, you know, a fight or flight response that we're all supposed to have. Have you ever, um, have you ever gone skydiving? No. <laughs> so I did it once. And I also think that that wasn't scary. Um, in the moment because it was just so overwhelming and there was no context for what was happening. Like it was just information overload. Like the door of the, this aircraft is open and I'm jumping at it. Like this, that doesn't make any sense. There's no framework to even be scared. I think that's what was happening to me. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I ever go skydiving again, I'll have, uh, having experienced it, I'll be like, Oh wait, what am I doing? This is scary. But, but I think, you know, I didn't have room for that kind of emotion in what was going through my head. I have a feeling that since you just went to space and you're on a rocket, I don't think you can be scared of jumping out of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You never know. Yeah, you never um, know. Um, it, it, it's not. It's not. It's not a daredevil thing, right? It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's an experience thing. Um, yeah, and people are using this phrase "space tourism," and um, from a dictionary definition, that is true, right? Tourism is going somewhere to see something that you want to see. Um, but I don't know, I, I, I never, you know, climbed, um, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro or you know, Mount Everest or anything like that. But, you know, um, you know, do, do you call, do you call somebody, um, who's climbed Mount Everest, like, a you know, a, a, a Nepalese tourist? No, <laughs> they climbed Everest. Right. And it, it takes, you know, certain gumption and, preparation and so um I, I do think that this isn't a, a flippant experience i hope one day the idea of uh, going up in space and, and you know the the term astronaut should be something that nobody really cares about because it's just so commonplace that's the goal and i think that the world will benefit from having that view and honestly part of my kind of hope for the space industry and, and by the way i think the writing's on the wall this is going to happen i don't know if it's going to be in the next 10 years or maybe my lifetime, or maybe it will be. But I remember as a kid, they took us around the circle line. Um, this boat that goes around Manhattan to give us all as high school kids. And I think we're grade school kids perspective. Um, you know, you, you look at um, uh, the uh, civil air patrol and like getting kids to understand aviation and give them that perspective. You know, how cool would it be if we had high school students around the world getting to see what I just saw, I just think people would, would be more careful about the planet and realize that some of the things that we think divide us down here aren't that important when you see it from that perspective. And so um, I, I hope that other people can have that emotional thing and, and, and that one day it is tourism, but it's not that yet. Yeah, one day. I mean, like we said, who would have thought that we'd be at this point when it wasn't too long ago when I'm pretty sure... John Glenn, I went to Ohio State in John Glenn, obviously Ohio. He came and talked to us and it was right when the government was kind of uh, deciding NASA's fate and how they're not going to do use NASA anymore to go to space. And they kind of made that decision. It's like, who would have thought that now the private sector would be able to do what it's doing right now? It's kind of incredible. And to hear how John Glenn talked about it and how disappointed he was, I'm sure seeing if he could see this right now, he would be very excited and very uh, hopeful for the future. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I have this perspective coming from healthcare and life sciences. You know, there's, if you think about, can you imagine if we were all waiting for governments to create vaccines, how long that would take? Um, if you look at 
the the way life sciences works, and and you don't have to look at vaccines. You can look at cures for cancer, whatever it is that somebody's waiting for as a patient. You've got you've got regulators, right? And I'll be very U.S. centric in this for a sec, but you've got the FDA that's there to protect the public health. That's their job, and then you've got intellectual, um, academic, and uh, government funded organizations. You got the the National Cancer Institute, the National Institute of Health, and then you've got the Pfizer's and Moderna's and Johnson's and Johnson's of the world and, and biotechs and so this huge, this huge industry on top of that. And I've worked in that industry for, uh, for two and a half decades. And I'm not going to pretend that it always gets it right. Um, but the fact of the matter is there is this really, um, functional, virtuous cycle where people who are waiting for things to let them live longer, help healthier, happier lives get them because of this. The synergy of regulation and, and publicly funded organizations and industry. And if you look at what's happening in space, you've got the FAA and you've got NASA and you've got international space agencies. And now you've got Blue Origin and SpaceX and Axiom and Virgin Galactic and everybody who is excited to be in that and companies like Zero G who are around it. I think we're about to get to that virtuous cycle. And it took us, it took us 60, you bring up John Glenn, but let's go back to Alan Shepard or Yuri Gagarin. It took us 60 years to get 600 people into space. I think my official number is 582. It's a great number. Yeah, I like you, that number. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think that might be part of my tail number for the DA42. Oh, it should, for sure. You got to roll that number. Everything about you has to be 582 now. You have to own 582 of everything. <laughs> Um, but if, if you think about that and now think about what's going on with all those companies, we'll probably put a hundred people in space next year. Uh, Chris Boss has, and my, my uh, crewmate like says it really well, like 2021 might be in history, the year we started sending people to space. If we put one sixth, the number of people that we took 60 years to put into space next year, that to me looks like that Moore's law computing capacity, how foreflight and iPads change the way we think about flying. We're just on that technological trajectory, which gives me a lot of optimism about sharing that feeling of seeing Earth from space and and about other industrial things that I think would be incredibly useful in terms of preserving the planet the way we want it to be. I think it's really happening. You you mentioned all the companies that are kind of working at this. And more specifically, the two that come to mind for a lot of people are going to be SpaceX and Blue Origin. Uh, I mean, I'm not as educated in the space as you are, so maybe the Virgin um, Galactic and all that is kind of on the same part. I'm not really too sure, but in my mind, it's SpaceX and Blue Origin. And honestly, and I say this because SpaceX dominates um, kind of the media world. Like most people, normal people like me that don't go to space, <laughs> they... They think space travel, I, I feel like they default straight to Elon Musk and SpaceX. Uh, what with you being so up close and personal, Blue Origin has kind of, um, can can share with everyone about what they're doing and how they have a real space in this. And, and I don't know if it's it, they're going to go against each other or maybe they can share and, and become not one, but work with each other to get the initial goal done of what they want to do. Uh, what have you seen and kind of what do you, what's your outlook for this? Yeah, so again, I actually think this um, multiple industrial companies there all um, not not only working together, which I'm sure there'll be more of, um, and I think there's there's 
been that precedent at the date, but but competing too. Like the competition is healthy, right? And, you know, I, I, Diamond and Cirrus probably make better aircraft because the other one exists, right? Um, and there is going to be there's going to be people who are going to buy both. Um, I think if you look at what people are doing from a a human um, flight perspective and from a payload perspective, everybody um, that you mentioned, and I think Virgin as well, and probably a lot of companies that we haven't heard of yet, are all all thinking about uh, and working on being in both of those things. Uh, Blue Origin just uh, announced a couple of days ago, I think, that they were going to be working on a space station as well. There's a, a great company called uh, Axiom that's working on a space station um, to ultimately uh, replace or sub- supplement and then replace the ISS. We're going to see these things happening. And um, I, I've met a lot of people now involved with Blue Origin from the test engineers, like the guy who I took for, for the flight in Texas. Um, and, and I've gotten... The, the chance to talk to Jeff Bezos about it. And these are people who have deep conviction and passion that in the case of Blue Origin specifically, you know, their mission is get millions of people living and working in space for the benefit of Earth. I, I, I have my own addendum to that, which is apropos to what I said before, get millions of people living and working in space to the, to the, for the benefit of Earth, the way humanity would like to, to see Earth maintained. Um, you know, we we can we can put domes over cities and air condition this planet, but that that's not what we want, right? We want to preserve the the, the beauty and and frankly create more abundance. Yeah, you know, we have, this is one of my personal kind of passions. Like there, there are people on Earth now who don't have access to clean water, right? Like I work with water.org because we have to fix that, we, not make it worse, right? And so Blue Origin, I think, is very interested in using. Their vehicles, they've got New Shepard, which is what I was on. They've got New Glennon Development, which is a, a much heavier um, uh, vehicle it's, that you can do things like bring up space stations and ultimately being able to go to the moon. All the stuff that SpaceX is working on, ultimately being able to, to go to Mars. And, and, you know, are we going to be mining asteroids one day? I, I, I think so. You know, and I, th- and I think that in a good way, because there's going to be there's going to be things that that we as our civilization need and they're. It's just a limited quantity of it on the planet. This is not a zero-sum game from an industrial perspective. There is, I think, plenty of room for SpaceX and Blue Origin um, and whoever else comes in um, with the Russian Space Agency and with NASA and with the European Space Agency and with China. Everybody, I think, is going to be contributing to this um, kind of new space race. And I, I think, unlike the, the Cold War-fueled old space race, there's a lot more activity that is really around benefit versus um, dominance. And so, again, I can be a big optimist, but I just think it's a very positive thing for our civilization. Oh, for sure. I mean, I definitely think it's a positive thing for the civilization. I just think it's, uh, I think the competition aspect behind it, and especially, oh, I mean, with private sectors and even with like uh, government-run sectors, it, there's a sense of ego around it too. I'm not saying that Jeff or Elon or anyone that has ego or egocentric or anything like that, but like to do this, to be the best, to be the first, and, and the competition behind it is is really good. It does push you to be the best, but the competition, it's going to be interesting interesting to see how it plays out in, in the form of uh, how they they interact with each other or how they compete and how they handle everything and, and how they rush to be the first and be the best and be the one. 
And I do think it's really hilarious that uh, Jeff is, was using Rivion for their trucks to drive them out. I mean, I don't know if that's like a, just a little shot <laughs> at Elon and, and, and Tesla. So it, it's just really interesting, the, the small things and how it's all going to play out and see the two companies because it is a race. I mean, it's it's essentially who's going to make it first and, and both of them want to be the ones to be the best. And they've always, they've built two of these huge companies and they've done such great things. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays off and, and, and plays out and the competition between the two and uh, pay attention to the two egos and, and what they do. A hundred percent. I mean, and, and, and you're right. And, and I think, you know, it's really important. And this, this is actually where um, people who, who spend their lives in industries, and again, I've seen in healthcare, um, are really important. Um, and where also, frankly, regulators are important. I always, in, in my healthcare world, I'm always the person saying, no, like, the regulators are there to really help make sure that we're, we're all doing this safely. Like if, if you come up with a new cure for some weird, rare disease, and I, I help you show that that worked with, with the Medidata platform, with my company stuff, like the, the FDA is not supposed to like look at us and be like, oh, yeah, you, you two are good guys. OK, we trust you. No, it's our job to prove to you, right, that it's something that's safe and effective. And and I think that, again, there's a healthy dynamic where that competition and um, the money and sometimes the egos are, are things that fuel that. Um, but you can do it in a way that, A, is at the same time safe and responsible, right? It's something that we all know in aviation. Um, and there's a long-term thing that is more important, I think, than the short-term, you know, who did this first or who did that first. Remember, it, we, you, you and I are, I, I don't know where you're we're talking from, but, you know, we're, we're both American, right? Um, we, we didn't go to space first. Russia went to space first with people, right? Um, and so, yeah, there's competition. Um, and, yeah, then the next question became, you know, who's going to put somebody on the moon first? And there are probably people who are saying, okay, well, who's going to put somebody on Mars first? Or who's going to get the moon lander contract from NASA? Who's going to get the next space station up? These are super important questions. There's just a bigger question of, uh, again, I'll use my healthcare world. It's like, you know, are people living longer and better lives? Like, can we look at that arc with the right perspective of zooming out? You know, is, is, is humanity reaching out and getting stuff off Earth that belongs off Earth um, from a pollution perspective? Are we finding resources that might benefit Earth from other places? Are we learning um, and uh, channeling uh, uh, crewmate Chris? Like, are we learning, you know, how to use resources like water more efficiently because we're so interested in um, using them in an environment where there isn't a faucet, you know, in orbit or on the moon or on Mars? Like, all these all these things come together and, and you don't necessarily expect, I think in this big perspective, um, what will emerge from industries and academia and competition. Right? I, I also am a trustee of uh, Carnegie Mellon, my alma mater. I spent a lot of time in my philanthropic life on education. And it's always important to emphasize to people that what might seem like foundational, non-applicable science, you know, quantum physics is what leads to transistors getting turned into microchips, which get turned into phones, which get turned into social networks, you know, maybe for bad, many times for good, um, you know, help me figure out, you know, to, to get a DA-40. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, there's these emerging things that happen and basic biology research turns into the ability to cure 
disease B because you developed something for disease A and you didn't realize they were related or and things like that. And so I just think that this acceleration of space stuff in a good way with the competition will probably result in a lot of benefits for everybody, not just people who are lucky enough to be able to go to space early, like me, um, but people who might never go to space or wouldn't have gone to space or wouldn't have benefited from some technology that was invented or developed because of space. And, and that's the thing that I really hope people take with them. Like equity and access to things that, that should be rights, not privileges, water, education, um, free time that you can use to enjoy hobbies. Like yeah, all these things, I think, come from our, our civilization's appetite for investing in foundations. And so I think this is another example of that I don't make, make the pilot to pilot podcast too grandiose, but I, just, I think that people don't realize that it's about making the world better for everybody. And, and even those egos that might sometimes see an opposition, seem in opposition to that, I think in this grand scheme actually fit right into that equation. Yeah. I mean, I definitely can see that as well. I mean, I, I've fallen the line of more of the competition aspect. I, I play football in college and kind of have always had that com- competitiveness in me. <laughs> Do whatever it takes to get the job done. So it's, uh, it, I think it's one of the things to watch and to see how it all plays out. Uh, it's going to be really, the whole thing is going to be interesting in the future of what we're going to do. And like you said, how fast it's going to happen, uh, how fast we're going to be able to put 600 people in a space, how fast we might be able to go back to the moon, go to Mars, keep expanding. I think the the quickness of it might surprise some people. I think so too, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I got, I had actually have a couple more questions. I know we were talking for over an hour, but we'll wrap it up soon. Uh, I'm really, does zero G, the actual flights, is it exactly the same when you're going up in space or is there differences? In terms of doing it in a plane versus doing yeah. space, is it exactly the same yeah, as your as what you went through? No, it, it, it it's not. Um, and actually, a uh, 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 guy I know who's an astronaut like sent me an email before the flight, like preparing me for this. Like, in the plane, you're kind of in a hurry um, because you, you're experiencing it in arcs, right? I, I mean that physically, right? You so you, you do the parabolic arc, and and you know while you're at the top of it, you get this microgravity environment because you're falling at the same is the point. But there's, as everybody listening to this knows, all kinds of external forces which are acting on the on the plane from a, a, an atmospheric perspective. And even though um, they're doing it really, really well, there are pilot inputs too, right? Um, when you are in zero-G, and I, I will never forget this moment when main engine cutoff happens, and all of a sudden, this giant rocket is now having one and only one force acting on it, which is gravity. You are, and actually after that happens, it's super quiet. Um, you, you're being pushed against your straps because like the, the seat cushion is pushing you in a way you would have never noticed on Earth. Um, and then you unstrap after the capsule's released. You are perfectly velocity vector matched with this capsule around you. And in my case, for minutes, you know, for people who are in the International Space Station, unless they're maneuvering, um, you know, for days, weeks, months, you, it is the most gentle environment you could possibly imagine. Just the tiniest little seat cushion, um, your finger. And one of the pieces of advice to give people is just never use your legs. Your legs are way too strong for moving around in a microgravity environment, right? You, you're definitely going to bounce off something. Um, 
it, it's an incredible um, sensation. And then uh, my last one is so my only so when you think about coming back down through the atmosphere, back down to Earth, I, I believe it was Apollo thirteen. I can't remember what movie it was, but they show the, the the spacecraft coming back down, and they show like flames all around it. They show like this and this really kind of I mean terrifying. It looks terrifying. Like it looks like nothing's going wrong or nothing's going right, but it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. Is that what happened with you when you're actually coming down through the atmosphere? Is there like a visible kind of uh, aura around it that you can see and feel and, and hear? Or is it just kind of like you're in a glider? You're just coming back down to earth. It's definitely not like you're in a glider. <laughs> we'll <start there. laughs> um, it, it, it's also not like you're in Apollo 13. And, and to be fair, again, we're, we're in a very different kind of vehicle we're, and we're, you know, we're suborbital, we're coming in at a, a, a different um, trajectory and velocity. Um, but I will tell you that it is, and um, uh, Sarah Knights, who's a crew member, number seven, who basically the person who trained us all um, and was with us the, every step of the way um, as kind of a member of our team, other than actually flying with us. Um, but an amazing person. And, and uh, she put this analogy, uh, I think, in my head which is you throw a stone at a lake. And if you watch that stone, it hits the surface of the lake and then very quickly decelerates at the top of the lake and then starts to float and settle itself on the, on the bottom. But, you know, you are the stone or you're in the stone and the, the lake is the atmosphere. And you get strapped back into your seat. And again, this part of the, the flight trajectory was incredible. Um, I didn't really think about now the horizon is straightening out and now the sky is turning back to blue and now you're seeing patterns emerge that you can recognize in the ground um and the initial feeling when you start to hit the atmosphere and there's this rush of air <laughs> that is going by the windows I, I don't think i've ever felt that kind of sensation of speed it was incredibly exciting. Um, and then the very quickly, um, it's kind of the, the highest G part of the, the flight profile. You go up to about five G's just for a second or two. Um, and that's as that stone is, is slowing down and beginning to descend that much more slowly. And then you go back to something that's much more like reasonable in the three range. Um, but, but that, you know, five G's is enough to, to make you feel like, the skin is pulling on your face. Um, and so you, it's amazing sense of, of velocity. And then this amazing sense, sense of acceleration, it's actually deceleration right here on your back. Um, and then once the, the shoots are out, it was, it was incredibly um, gentle. Actually we're, we're under the mains and we hear uh, Capcom tell us that the booster had landed successfully. And you know, the booster is a, is a, it's a robotic spaceship. I don't know why it felt so, we were so elated. Like the whole crew was cheering. It was like we, you know, we, it was like we won the Super Bowl, but we had this amazing emotional attachment to this thing um, that got us up to space. And, and, and really, I, maybe if I give you this one last thought, like, like to each other, um, we were under the mains and Chris now makes the suggestion that before we, we get out of the capsule, we just take one more moment together. And so we didn't plan it this way. We happened to have one at the apogee at the very top of our arc. And then we got down and, and Jeff opened the door and welcomed us back to earth. And we unstrapped from our seats and we just kind of did this spontaneous group hug. Everybody's kind of pushing their foreheads together and is just 
that now with gravity, you know, weeping, it was just, it was, it was so transformational in terms of the way I, in the moment, I think we all realized we would be changed forever. Um, it was not just a great strap yourself into something exciting experience, not just a, a intellectual experience around understanding um, our, our planet and the, the physical aspects of it, but also this kind of very um, emotional human experience of connecting to people and you know, getting perspective on the people waiting for you on the ground, biting their nails the whole time. Um, it, it was it was incredible. I really hope that everybody gets to experience it. And I'm going to keep doing everything I can to make that happen. So here's one of my last questions. Uh, how do you top this? Like if someone that has done so many impressive things, like I'm sure there's been a thought in your mind. It's like, how does, how does life get better? How do I continue to, to kind of do better things, do bigger things, do cooler things? I really don't, I mean, I'm not saying this, but like, how do you top this? How do you continue to, to, to achieve great things? Like when you have kind of achieved the coolest thing that you can possibly do already, you know? I, again, I, I think you're kind to say that. Um, it certainly was in, incredible. I, I, I honestly have not, I, I, maybe it's just not my personality, but I'm not like waking up like, um, what's the next cooler thing? Um, you know, like what, what, what's the next cooler thing? It, uh, I'm going to get my steep spirals to be a little bit better for my commercial check ride. <laughs> like I, <That's> awesome. <laughs> it's, it, and, and enjoy that maybe that much more, um, because of the new perspective. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Because you look at it in the way of uh, achievements. It's like you you would live a life where you can't do anything cooler than what you just did. And that'd be pretty sad. So that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. The, 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 you know, the, the next cool thing is the next achievement that you care about. Exactly. All right. I got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. These are just a very uh, quick and uh, fast aviation themed questions. You just say the first thing that comes to your mind. You ready? Cool. Go. What's your favorite airplane ever? My DA-40. What about a corporate jet? Um, probably, probably a, a Challenger 350 airline. Those are really nice. What about an airliner? Japan Airlines. Oh, like a, a big airliner? Yeah. Like a, I think a three a 380. I mean, how could it not be? What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? <laughs> um, there's a a really um cute kind of old uh. 172 that's actually at my flight school which i actually really love to fly and the paint is peeling off it everywhere and the the dash is a mess and it for some reason it just makes me really happy every time i've gotten a chance to fly it um, so it's a good ugly. It's, it's like the yeah it's a good ugly it's cute what's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot uh, i wish i knew how much fun it was so i would have started it earlier who in the industry would you like to meet most it could be alive or they could have passed on um, hmm. uh, I actually, I got to meet Alan Shepard's, um, daughters as just because I, they were at one of the, the first blue origin launch and hearing about him just as a, from a family perspective made me really, I mean, I, I already had hero worship for him. Um, but I, I think he was a really interesting, cool guy. What's your favorite thing about aviation? Uh, the freedom that I can get up and go and get anywhere. And sometimes it's going to take me longer than shorter. Um, and sometimes I have to wait a day to do it. But I, I didn't realize I could have that much freedom in my life with, uh, with this hobby. Hardest approach you've ever flown or hardest flight you've ever flown? Um, actually, uh, I was, it, it was just a uh, couple days ago. Um, and uh, I, I was 
I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, but as, as I was mentioning, um, I was going in somewhere and, uh, I had to get in, in, information relayed to and from uh, center because I lost contact with them. And it wasn't like the approach was hard, but again, as a relatively early instrument pilot, um, it, it doesn't matter what I think you've been trained for. The idea of having that connection severed um, uh, just made it, it made task prioritization and waiting way more intense than I was used to. I, I don't usually think about, okay, now I have to do nothing and wait for some new piece of information to come back. That was the hardest thing I think I've done today. Other than the obvious of what you just flew or what you were just on, what is your favorite flight you've ever had? Um, my favorite flight I've ever had was going down to Florida. I mentioned that I, I went to that uh, F-104 Starfighter School, which is probably my favorite jet ever. Um, and I got to land, uh, not just do a uh, low pass, but I got to land at the Kennedy Space Center. I, I used about, you know, um, about 800 feet of the 15,000 foot runway. <laughs> and um, it, being told that you, you need to move a little bit to the west to stay out of the, the airspace for the, the rockets that are on the pad um, is a pretty cool thing to hear Tower tell you to cool. do. What's your, uh, so I'm guessing that'll probably be your favorite airport you've ever landed at too, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I really, like I said, uh, uh, Van Horn, uh, probably because of Blue Origin, uh, Culberson County is like up there now as, as a favorite destination. But yeah, I mean, okay, the, the shuttle landing facility, how can I give you a better answer than that? What's your least favorite I mean, airport? God, One that you just hate to land at and you just don't want to go uh, to? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't have any, I mean, I, I don't feel like I have anything that I, I, don't like i do remember the the first time i landed sky acres um i was like wow this runway really slopes a lot and i'd never been hit, i'd never land on something that dropped away like that and i, I remember coming back and, and saying to my cfi uh yeah i just went over to uh to sky acres and like man i i should have looked at like the the actual slope of the runway more and, and I, I got one of those like how many times did I tell you that and you didn't listen to me? <laughs> so that, that, that was that was probably my my most like oh wow what's happening here um, <laughs> early in my private pilot uh, era uh, funny. landings. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? IFR favorite airport food. So uh, let's say you are commuting. You're commuting by airline. Maybe you haven't done this in a while, but you are uh, in Charlotte. You're in some major hub, and you have. 30 minutes to go get food, 45 minutes to go get food. What's your go-to food in an airport? Uh, like the actual food I'm going to get, it's probably going to be a BLT or a burger. Where would you go? What is you have like a specific restaurant you always try to find? Or just wherever you can get oh, BLT? No. I mean, <laughs> airport yeah, food I, is airport I, food. I, I'm, I'm like a, a, a diner to me. A diner style place is absolute heaven. All right. Well, would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or the cities? Cities. I'm a city kid. Airbus or Boeing? Airbus. Would you rather fly as many long or the longest flight you can possibly do in your DA40 or as many takeoff and landings you could do? I mean, like until you're about to run out of fuel, like 50, 60 takeoff and landings. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd rather do 50 or 60 takeoffs and landings. And, and I always get asked what the range is of my DA40. And I always respond, well, how long can you wait to pee? So, you know, <laughs> so I, it's a reasonable number of takeoffs and landings in that case. Would you rather fly on the back of a CRJ or an ERJ? 
CRJ. 141 training for 61. Uh, if you could go back and do it again, would you choose one or the other? And I'm guessing for what you're doing right now, 61 is probably perfect for you. But the idea to, to get your CFI as quick as possible, would you rather do it 141 or 61? 141. 141. And your favorite airline. I think you kind of hinted on this earlier, but what's your favorite overall airline? Well, I, I love Japan Airlines. Japan is like, I, I got to open an office uh, for a company there uh, years and years ago. And it's like a home away from home. And so just getting onto, onto JAL feels like uh, I'm on my way back to, to to my second home to see my friends. And so I get a very, that home feeling I was talking about looking at earth. I get that when, when I'm getting on JAL. I love it. That's cool. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I do have one more question. I just wanted to say thank you. And I think what you've done is just is crazy cool. Like you have done some, you've had an experience that so many people yearn for and, and want, and you have had that. And it's really cool. So I wish you the best and being an advocate for it, whether it's for Blue Origin specifically, or just your greater goal of preserving the, the world and making it a better place to live. Uh, my last question, I get a lot of DMs from, from people that are older in life that want to get into aviation, that want to go fly. But as you know, uh, sometimes it can be difficult with whether it's life, whether it's finances, whatever it is. I and mean, even you yourself kind of said that you had some things come up and you had to put it off and come back. What do you say to someone that's going through the same process as you that has kind of, the, the that's always wanted to fly an airplane, but has had the issue with uh, maybe just life gets in the way. Uh, how do you prioritize it and how do you make sure to continue it? Yeah, um, look, if you don't get a chance to fly today, the sun is going to come up tomorrow and you just got to get comfortable with the fact that that's going to happen sometimes. Um, but, but if you, if you haven't tried it and you do, and then you really love it, which I think so many people frankly will, will be in the category of then every day you can make one of those, one of those things that what's the next coolest thing I'm going to do. My next coolest thing I'm going to do is go spend an hour and a half, you know, learn how to fly. So just get it done. Just get it done. I love it. Perfect. Well, Glenn, thanks so much. We'll debrief for a little bit, but I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. This is great. And that's a wrap of episode 194 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe and check out Pilot's Coffee. I hope everyone's having a good day. And as always, happy flying.